Exodus chapter 20, the 10th commandment is actually found in verse 17. We've been moving verse by verse through the book of Exodus. We are in chapter 20. So find your place there, chapter 20, verse 17. Once you've got it, would you stand if you're able with us as we read this one passage? Exodus 20, verse 17, the 10th commandment reads this way. It says, you shall not covet, Exodus 20, verse 17, your neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Father, as we uh, study your word now, we are so grateful for this 10th commandment summing up the law. It is a command that is going to cause us to look in and then look up because it is a commandment that deals directly with our hearts And we know that every heart is laid bare before you anyway. But this particular command was one that I think convinced the the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, that he needed a Savior. And there's no doubt that that's the purpose of the law. It's a tutor to drive us to Christ. And thank you that, Jesus, you came. You lived the perfect life that we could never live. You died on our behalf. You rose for our justification. Thank you that if we're Christians, we're in Christ And we are joined to another. And we pray that, Father, as we study your word now, you will do your work in us, that our response to you would be pleasing in your sight. We ask all of that in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The 10th commandment, you shall not covet. You'll notice that the verse before this was the first mention of our neighbor. And then we have three mentions of our neighbor In verse uh, 17, notice verse 16, the ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then your neighbor's mentioned multiple times in verse 17. The first mention in the ninth commandment, now three mentions of your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife. You have female and male servants there. You have ox, donkey, and then you have this sweeping command or anything that belongs to your neighbor, just in case you thought there was some wiggle room or you were looking for loopholes, there are none. Anything that belongs to your neighbor. Remember that your neighbor, biblically, is defined as anyone that you interact with, anyone that you cross paths with. So we can't play games with the neighbor deal, you know, the, the religious leader asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells that great story of the Good Samaritan, meaning that, Anyone that we cross paths with is our neighbor. And so what are we commanded not to do? Well, we are commanded not to covet our neighbor's house, wife, etc. If you're interested, this command is repeated in Deuteronomy 5.21. That's the law repeated to the next generation. If you were curious, that's why it's laid out again. So it is repeated in Deuteronomy 5.21. And it is a commandment that deals directly with the heart, where all the other commandments started from the outside, and then Jesus moved them to the inside. For example, he said that don't commit adultery includes lusting, murder includes hating without a cause, etc. This particular command starts from the inside and then goes out. And I think it's positioned as the 10th commandment for a reason, because you could say that every one of the commands that we break starts first in our heart and then moves to an action. So first we covet and then we commit something wrong. The classic scene of David up on his rooftop, he sees Bathsheba bathing. He's intoxicated by her beauty. He asks about her. He finds out that she is married. She belongs to another, namely Uriah, who's fighting on the battlefield for David and for the nation. But nonetheless, David is so fixated on her so coveting her to have her as his own that he calls for her, he's with her, as you know the story, and then there's disaster that follows. I will tell you that the pornography industry in our world is built on the idea of coveting, that you would look at images and covet them and keep coming back and back and back. And in in fact, in a general way, advertising is built on the knowledge of advertisers that you're going to covet, the new and improved. They don't even have to change the product. They just have to put new packaging on it, new and improved. And you're like, ugh, got to try that cereal, got to try that, right? 
the car industry, whatever it may be, all built on this particular idea of wanting more and more and more. Jesus put it this way in Mark 7, 20 through 23. He said, that which proceeds out of a man is that which defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, that's Mark 7, 22, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jesus says, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And that is what coveting is. It is an issue of the heart. It is not a commandment that someone can see that you are breaking. You could fool people around you. They don't know that you're coveting because it's inside of you. It's an inside job. That's what this command's all about. It's about desires and longings and looking to, you know, that which is forbidden. And that's precisely the definition of the word for covet. If you're taking notes, it's the Hebrew word kamad, spelled C-H-A-M-A-D. To covet means to have a strong desire for, but it's not merely about having an appreciation for something from a distance or even a legitimate desire. That's not what coveting's about. We all should be driven to do well in our jobs and to do the best we can for our families. It's not about legitimate desire. It's about illegitimate desire. Coveting is longing for what is forbidden. So if you're taking notes, that is a good definition of what coveting is. It's synonymous with the word in the New Testament for lust, epithumia. And in context, the word epithumia can have a positive meaning, having a desire for what's good and right, but mostly used in the negative, a lusting or longing for what is forbidden. And so to walk it out, it's not merely having an appreciation for something from a distance, but it is uncontrolled, ungoverned, inordinate craving or selfish desire. It means, to break down the word, to crave, to yearn for, to hanker after something that belongs to another. And that is the key thought. Remember the repetition of your neighbor. It belongs to your neighbor. She belongs to your neighbor. It belongs to your neighbor. So it's not a matter of acquiring or even desiring. It's a matter of that belongs to somebody else, that person, that thing, etc. That talent, it could be. Maybe you, you, know, you see somebody else with giftings that you desire, etc. And it encompasses all of, encompasses all of that. So the word has the idea of being consumed with possessing what belongs to someone else. You might want to write that down as an additional definition. It is being consumed with possessing what belongs to someone else. And sinful desires, of course, or sinful deeds always start with sinful desires. This is how it works. And this is James 1, 14 through 16. It says, each one of us is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust a longing for what is forbidden. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Our first parents are in the garden. God says you can have access to all the trees, all the fruit of the trees. There's only one tree in the midst of the garden that you are not to touch. It's forbidden. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a lot of conjecture about why they were forbidden from that tree. Some believe it was not a matter of always being forbidden from it, but a matter of timing. That's a bit of debate. But the one tree they were told not to touch, not to partake of, where is Eve hanging out? Right by that tree. And Adam, according to Genesis 3.6, is with her. So they're both there by the tree. Why are they there? Practical advice. If there is something that is forbidden, don't hang out next to it. Amen? Because more, more of us than we'd like to admit put ourselves in positions where we're tempted. Now, there are some things we cannot avoid. You know, we're just living life and something comes across the screen, as it were, and we got to deal with it. But don't put yourself in a position to fall. There she is. The serpent enters. He's more than happy to accommodate your sin. He lies about God. He makes promises to her. She partakes. So does Adam. And mankind obviously is devastated as a result of this. So that's the classic example of our first parents 
being next to the forbidden tree. Instead of enjoying everything else that God had given them, they wanted the one thing that they were told not to have. You can see this in the nursery when kids are playing with different toys. Huh? And all of a sudden, one kid has the toy. It could be a box, for that matter. And then the other kid, I want it, I want it, mine, mine, mine. And you see that. And as we get older, we do the same thing, just different expressions of it. And so this is what the command is all about. It's wanting to take from somebody else that which they rightfully possess. And it's all the worst in us. But I will tell you that once we take a look within our hearts, we realize this command is deep and it is convicting, especially in our culture, where so much of our society is built on if only. Contentment seems to be the farthest thing from most of our hearts, and not just outside the church, but inside the church. And I'm going to give you some practical encouragement about the opposite, which is contentment, when we get to the end of the message. But for a moment, I would like you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 7, so we'll come back uh, to a few other passages, but we're going to move to Romans chapter 7. Now, you all know that before the Apostle Paul became Paul, he was Saul. He was a Pharisee born from Jewish parents. And he said when it comes to the outward working of the law, he was blameless. Now, I think few people could say that, but what Paul was essentially saying as Saul, Pharisee Saul, is when people looked at my life, I kept the law blamelessly. No one could bring an open charge that I was breaking the Torah. But somewhere along the line, when Jesus Christ confronted Saul on the road to Damascus, and Saul began to revisit his life, and somewhere in that period of time when he was called out and he responded to the Lord, apparently he began to revisit the Torah, and he began to revisit the Ten Commandments. And he talks about this in Romans 7. And I just want to set this up by bringing a question that's asked in Galatians 3.19. Why the law then? What is the purpose of the law? It was added, Galatians 3.19, because of transgression until the seed should come or the Messiah. Now here's what Paul says about it. He says, do you not know, Romans 7.1, brethren, I'm speaking to those who know the law, Romans 7.1, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Now, law in context here is the Ten Commandments because in verse 7, he's going to bring up the Tenth Commandment, which we're studying now. He uses an analogy, illustration. The married woman is bound by law, this is marriage law now, to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, this is a key word in the whole teaching of us being joined to Christ. She shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you are also made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you, may, might, you might be joined to another, to him, that's Christ, who was raised from the dead, the result, in order that we might bear fruit to God. How can we be fruitful? It's not going to come by moralism. It's not going to come by putting yourself under the law as a Christian. You've been joined to another. In marriage imagery, just take a look at Romans 6, and here's the theme of being joined. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death, Therefore, Romans 6, 4, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is what? Is freed from sin. Now, here's what's happened to you as a Christian. The law has become our tutor to drive us to Jesus. 
Once you open your heart to Jesus as Savior and Lord, you enter into a new covenant marriage with him. We are the bride of Jesus Christ. Now that marriage will be finally consummated when we're with the Lord, but we already have the uh, down payment. The dowry has been paid through the blood of Christ. The engagement ring is the Holy Spirit. And we're, we're, gonna, we're already married to him, but we're going to enter into the fullness of those promises down the line. So right now we are married or joined to Christ. So as it relates to the law, we are no longer under the weight of the law. The law cannot save you. The law is a tutor, schoolmaster, to drive you to the answer. The one who came into this world and lived the perfect life that you could never live and I could never live. The one who died sacrificially on the cross and nailed the requirements of the law to the cross. Amen? And rose from the dead. And because you are in Christ, when he died, it's as if you died. When he rose, it's as if you rose. Pictured in baptism here in Romans chapter 6, you are united with him. You are in Christ. And God has reconciled you to himself. No longer counting your sins against you. Amen? Now, two responses often come from this idea. If I'm not under the law and I'm under grace, some people will say, well, then I can do whatever I want. And if you confront another Christian with sin, they might say something like this. Hey, bro, I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. Well, you may be under grace, but here's the idea. Being under grace doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. Well, what does it mean then? It means that since you are married to Christ, this is extremely important. The singular focus of your life now becomes pleasing him. Not because of law, but because of love. Amen? So if you want to simplify the Christian life, it's not about trying to measure up to the Ten Commandments because we all realize we've fallen short of them. I'm not saying the law is gone. We, it's still a moral compass for us. But our ultimate desire as Christians is having been united to Jesus and we want to be, show fidelity unto him as in a marriage. Amen? Now here's what we know for those of you who are married. When you marry somebody, you come to the altar and I've done so many weddings and it's always wonderful to see the groom and he's there and here she comes and tears usually start to flow and it's wonderful. And the wedding ceremony can almost blaze right past them because they're just, whoa, there's so much going on and so much stuff. And, and all of a sudden you share the vows and you will you have her only be faithful under her only as long as you both shall live. Yeah, 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 yeah. And will you have him? Yeah, 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 right? Well, she, usually she hesitates a little bit because he didn't look as pretty. But anyway, never mind. All right, so, so the, the marriage is consummated. Vows are given in the Christian life. This is what happens the moment you get saved. We love him because he first loved us. We enter into a marriage, a new covenant, and we grow. The same grace that saved you is the grace that sanctifies you. Amen. The same way that you got justified by the finished work of Jesus, you will be sanctified by grace. Grace is a great motivator, but ultimately the idea is love. I want to do for him what I can do. And I'm going to grow. Of course, when I'm a brand new Christian, I'm going to probably have different struggles than if I've been a Christian for 20 years. You see the marriage analogy. The same is true in marriage. Things change. Seasons change. But love grows deeper. Appreciation grows deeper. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying you've been joined to another, and this is how you bear fruit to God. For while, 7-5, we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit the other way, to bear fruit to death. The wages of sin is death. But now, as believers... We've been released from the law, having died to that which we, by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? So is the law the problem then? Is the Ten Commandments a problem? May it never be, God forbid. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Keep reading. For I would not have known about, here's our command, coveting, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, personified here as 
a person taking an opportunity or crouching at the door. Sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, uh, proved to result in death for me. Do this and you, you will live. The law said, we can't do it. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. The, the law is holy, verse 12. The commandment's holy and righteous and good. That's not the problem. In the rest of the chapter, Paul says, the problem's not the law. The problem is right here. Looking back at me in the mirror and coveting has brought that to the fore or brought that home probably more than any other commandment because coveting is all about what's in here, all about what's rotating in this brain of mine and this heart of mine. And in any given week, whenever we long for that which doesn't belong to us, that which is forbidden, we are in trouble. We are breaking this command. And here's, here's another interesting thing. Not only does the command bring light to our hearts, but the command also, in some sense, stimulates sin. It seizes opportunity and it stimulates sin in me. You say, how does that work? Well, imagine that you leave church today and you drive down Main Street and a new business has been built with a brand new front window and it says, it is forbidden to throw rocks at this window. Well, some people would look at that and be rule keepers, but other people might be tempted. What do you mean forbidden? All of you have seen the sign that says, wet paint, do not sit here. Usually you invite your friend to test out that theory, right? There is something in us that when someone says the line is right here, there's something that in us that wants to cross the line because it's a bit naughty. It's a bit exciting. Let me, I'm going to use it in illustration from uh, normal everyday life so we can get this. And I, this is a conversation I heard between two scholars, and they put it this way. Imagine that you have a boyfriend and girlfriend, and they know that they shouldn't live together. Either they have Christian teaching or they're, they're, they're believers, and they move in together, and they, they, they break what God says. No premarital sex, etc. but they move in together. It happens all the time, right? Inside, outside the church. And they're living together, and there's a certain excitement to doing what's forbidden, a certain naughtiness to it. And so let's say that they do it and they have people warning them, whatever, but they do it. And for a while, it seems stimulating and exciting. But let's say that that same two people decide to get married. Well, all of a sudden, that can bring up some questions about their fidelity later when he goes on a business trip or whatever. I'm not saying it happens all the time. My bigger point is this. There's something in us that when the line is drawn forbidden, we want to step over it. The, the line can sometimes stimulate sin. Uh, our children, we tell them, this is the boundary. Do not cross it. And some of our kids are poster children for strong will. And they not only step over it, but then they say, what you going to do about it? And that's when you apply the board of correction to the seat of understanding. Can I get a witness? All appropriate don't call Dr. Phil and tell him Pastor Michael or whatever. Anyway. So Paul says, not only did the command undo me and show me my need for a savior, but the command stimulated sin. Francis Schaeffer puts it this way. Thou shalt not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a savior. The average such moral man, in quotes, who has lived comparing himself to other men and comparing himself to a rather easy list of rules can feel like Paul, that he's getting along all right. But suddenly, when he is confronted with the inward command not to covet, he is brought to his knees. And this is what happens in our world. It's what happens in our heart. It is fed by our culture. Turn over to Luke chapter 12. I heard a story about a family that the mom called everybody together. She was ill, called the family together, Luke 12. And she said, okay, we're gonna, I'm gonna leave everything to you guys. So I want you to start to tag what you want in the house. And, and never do we see uh, greed and covetousness like in squabbles over family money and possessions. 
And so everybody, you know, starts to split up and tag things, and there's a little tension, a little fighting. I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. And it starts to get a little bit ugly. And one of the kids takes a tag and puts it on mom and says, I want her, not all her stuff. And I will tell you that inheritances and uh, money and squabbles over these things sometimes will bring out all the worst in us. Because we get fixated on a possession and we lose the heart of God. Jesus in Luke chapter 12 was teaching and the end of uh, verse two, he began saying to his disciples, Luke 12, two, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Paul had been a Pharisee as Saul. They're phonies. There's nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known, including coveting. Accordingly, whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Now, Jesus gives a few more encouraging words and then dropping down to verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard, double warning, against every form of greed or covetousness. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. It's almost as if that man in the crowd didn't hear what Jesus was saying. And right away he spurts out, Rabbi! And rabbis used to be asked to solve these kinds of things. Tell my brother, tell that brother of mine to give me my stuff. And Jesus was like, wait a minute, Do I, I guess I need to repeat this. Beware of this. Be on your guard. Watch out for it. Because it can be subtle and not so subtle. I heard a story of a man, he was mowing his lawn, and he said, you know, he's got this great house, and he, he enjoys doing yard work, you know, putting the lawn, lines in the lawn, and a little water on top of it. You know, there's a certain satisfaction after you've mowed the lawn and it looks good and you've edged it and everything. So he said, I did this and I, I sat down and I look at my lawn and I looked at my house and I thought, this is so cool. This is great. Look at that lawn. It looks awesome. Thank you, Lord. And he was knocking back a glass of iced tea and he started thumbing through a magazine that was sitting outside. And he said the, the name of the magazine was called Homes and Gardens. And he said, as he began to thumb through it, he saw these beautiful lawns and these beautiful gardens. And he began to look at his own lawn and his own house. And he was like, he saw these incredible homes. He was like, this is a shack we live in. This lawn is just a weed infested, terrible. And he just was going off. And all of a sudden, satisfaction and contentment became coveting and dissatisfaction. In a moment of seconds, just thumbing through a magazine, he said, oh, wait a minute. It wasn't called homes and gardens. It was called Better homes and gardens. Because there's always something better. There's a story about a man named Aurelio Barreto. He became a Christian as a, a businessman. He started the company Dog Glue that sold dog houses built like igloos. It took off. He sold it for millions and millions of dollars. He was a non-Christian. I guess he didn't have that great of a reputation. And uh, he went down to a Porsche dealer in Riverside, he bought a brand new cherry red Porsche, Porsche Turbo Carrera with the top down, paid cash for it, and started racing down the 91 freeway and had this overwhelming sense of emptiness come into his soul. And I just thought to myself upon hearing that story, I just want to try it. <laughs> just to see if that same overwhelming sense of emptiness would occur. Covet. Covet, covet, covet. Anyway, so he was going down the 91 and he said he felt this terrible emptiness. And he was like, if I just bought this car cash and this doesn't make me happy, what's wrong with me? Well, that led Aurelio Barreto to open his heart to Christ and realize that possessions, the abundance of one's possessions don't do it. And people who often get to the top will tell you this, you know, there's programs out there, I don't know if they're still out there, but they're called lifestyles of the, the not so rich and poor, no, 
It's the rich and famous. And you get to go through their house and, ooh, look at that. There's more square footage in their living room than I have in my whole house. Ooh, look at that pool. Ooh, ooh. Yes, over here we have the maid's quarters. And over here we have the sparkling new pool. And over here, and you, ooh, they, they don't really deserve that. I deserve that. And then you start going through your if-onlys. You know, if only I would have made that business deal. When I'm gonna if only I would have made it. And all of a sudden you're like. It's, it's this inward longing for what someone else possesses. And Jesus said, beware. It could be your neighbor's house. This is the list in Exodus 20, 17. Spouse. Servant, you can think of employees or business, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Isn't it interesting? It starts with a house and a spouse. And when you look at other people's lives from a distance, you usually have wrong conclusions. Like, oh, look at over there. Look at that house. Well, sometimes you see maximum square footage in a house and start thinking this way. What's it going to take to power that thing? What's it going to take to clean that thing? Can I get a witness? You might want to reduce your overall square footage. You know, you never know. And we start looking at other people's spouses from a distance. Well, do you know something? If you are in that relationship, you'd carry the same problems into there that you have in the one that you presently have. But the grass looks greener on the other side. And still, until you start walking for a while in it. And there's a pastor who said this wisely. If the grass ever looks greener on the other side, you better water yours more. Hmm? Because we think, oh, I'll go into that other relationship and everything will be wonderful over there. No, it won't. Because you'll be there. (laughs) And that other person will be there. And they're messed up and you don't know. Because we're all sick, as Pastor John famously says. (laughs) You see, we play this game. And instead of taking advantage of what we've got and celebrating it and being thankful for it, we do all the what ifs, if only. And it it is a corrupting game. And it's fed by all the worst in us And I will tell you, it will bring you destruction. Now, I mentioned Adam and Eve. I mentioned David. I want to show you a story. It's found in the book of Joshua. So you got the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. So Joshua is the guy who's going to carry the, uh, lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And so here's what's happening. Joshua chapter six, they have... uh, They're getting ready to take Jericho 615 of Joshua. It came about on the seventh day that they rose early at the dawning of the day, Joshua 615, marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times, 616. It came about at the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city and the city shall be under the ban. And it shall, and all that is, Stop, repeat. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. It's kind of a first fruits of the promised land. Everything in it is forbidden under the ban, and namely, it belongs to the Lord. This goes with coveting. It belongs to another. It's not yours. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her and the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. 18. As for you, only keep yourselves from things under the ban lest you what? You covet them and take some of the things under the ban so you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They belong to him. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So that's going to be now into the future tabernacle and temple. So they're told, here's the rule. Repeated in Deuteronomy 7.25. Just write it down for your notes. The graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it. 
for it's an abomination to the Lord your God. So into the city they go, this amazing victory over Jericho with these impenetrable walls. The walls fall down. They take the city. And here's what happens. Joshua 7.1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to things under the ban or forbidden. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Here's what happened. Israel has taken Jericho, an amazing victory. Now they go to face a group called Ai, just simply Ai. And they're pretty weak. And so they say, we only need a couple thousand soldiers to take on these guys and we'll, no problem. And they go up and they get their clock cleaned by Ai. And several of the soldiers are killed in the battle. And Joshua is beside himself. He's like, what happened here? So Joshua said, alas, he begins to pray, 7-7. Seven, seven. Oh, Lord God, why did thou ever bring the people over the Jordan only to deliver, deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. If only we'd stayed on the other side. Oh, Lord, what can I say? Since Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, we just got destroyed. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut us off from, the name of, from our name from the earth. And what will thou do for thy great name? We're going to be spoken poorly of your name, etc. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up, get up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they also have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel, here's the result, cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. Now, God lays it out, and I, and I have had a thought that hit me this week studying this. It may be that some of us are getting beat up in spiritual warfare because we are dabbling in areas that are forbidden. And I'm not talking about legitimate areas uh, where legitimate desire exists. I'm talking about a longing and then a grabbing for what is forbidden. You, you are in jeopardy of your prayers being compromised and not heard or not answered. You're in jeopardy of a lot of things. And so basically the illustration to, uh, here to Israel is you, you, you can't win the battle like this. You're playing a deception game. You've got these things hidden. And so finally through a process it gets discovered that Achan is the guy who did it. And Joshua, verse 19, said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to God, the God of Israel, and give him praise. Give praise to him. Tell me now, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. 20. Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I, Achan, saw the spoil, a beautiful mantle from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I what? I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Through a process, all of a sudden, Achan is found out. The Lord knew all along what he had done, what he was coveting, and how he took the stuff. And I'll tell you, the end of the story is very tragic and very sad because Achan and his family fall under the judgment of God and are destroyed. It is a sobering story. In fact, that valley where they stone him and his family is called the Valley of Achor. It means the Valley of Trouble. But here's some good news. In Hosea 2, 15 and 16, it says, Then I will give her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor, or the valley of trouble, I will open up a door of hope. And she will sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. 
And in that day, declares the Lord, Hosea 2.16, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. You'll move away from idolatry, and you'll call me your spouse. Even in the valley of trouble, a door of hope can open. We see the law for what it says. You shall not covet. And Paul says, when I saw it, it killed me. I thought I was good. I thought I was a righteous man. I thought I was a a grand Pharisee who would be just transported into heaven the moment I died. And I found out I'm a sinner under the judgment of God without some intervention. And that drove uh, Saul, who became Paul, to Jesus. And around the Roman world he went, preaching the good news of the gospel to Jew, Gentile, anyone who would listen about a Savior who gives us his righteousness as a gift. Amen? This is why we need the gospel. One other account, I won't uh, take you there, but it's a story about Gehazi, Gehazi and he's the uh, servant of Elisha. The, the record is in 2 Kings 5, 20 through 27. Here's the story quickly. Uh, the Syrian commander Naaman gets healed by dipping seven times in the Jordan and he comes out and his, his skin is like baby skin and he goes and he wants to give Elisha money for the healing. And Elisha said, no, I, I don't want anything. Just go in peace. And so off he goes and as he's riding away on his chariot with his men, well, Gehazi thinks, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take advantage of this opportunity. And so he runs him down and he says, oh, Oh, when, just when you left, two other servants of the prophets came and, and they need housing and food and, and stuff. And so uh, is like, well, just tell me what you need. And he gives them some of the gifts and Gehazi gets them and he hides them away and he goes back and stands before his master. And Elisha says, Gehazi, where have you been? Uh, uh, nowhere. Uh, nowhere. Whenever you hear that, what, what have you been up to? Nothing. <laughs> you know they're in trouble, right? You take the cookie? No. Chocolate chips hanging out both sides of the mouth, right? And here's what Elisha says. Did not my spirit go with you when you pursued that man and when you took that money? Is this a time for the taking of possessions? And he basically says, because of what you've done, the leprosy that left him is going to cleave to you and your family. And Gehazi goes out the door full of leprosy. And leprosy is a picture of sin. You see, this, these are the stories. You think of Achan, you think of Gehazi, you think of Adam and Eve, you think of David, and you're like, wow, this, is, this permeates scripture. What is the answer to coveting? What do I do now? The answer to coveting is contentment. And I want to take you to a few passages and we're done. The first is Philippians 4. So we're going to study Philippians on Wednesday nights. I hope you'll join us. It's an incredibly powerful book. But we're going to go to Philippians 4. We're going to look at a passage that's familiar. I want you to see the full setting of it so you can grab the, the context here. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing. Why do you think we're so anxious? Well, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, Philippians 4, 7, which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there's any excellence... If anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content. And notice Paul had to learn it, and so do we. And that's, it is a process. That's what the word means. I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and he's writing this letter from jail. And I also know how to live in prosperity. 
in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret, and I hope we're learning it as well, of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need, I can do, let's say it together, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, who puts power into me. Now, as much as I appreciate football players with Philippians 4.13 on the eye black, especially if it's, they're playing for my team, that's not the meaning of this verse. It's not about being able to throw a ball 75 yards. You could pray all day long. If you don't have a good arm, you ain't throwing a ball 75 yards. It's not about leaping tall buildings in a single bound. It is about uh, locking in to learning contentment. It's about being in a situation and just saying, Lord, if this is where you have me, then I'm going to be thankful. And instead of saying, if only or what if, I'm just going to say, thank you, Lord. And it is a battle. And I want to be clear that I'm not talking about having goals or legitimate pursuits to do well or legitimate desires. Those are all fine. We're talking about things forbidden. Godliness is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment, 1 Timothy 6, 6. Now, if we turn over to Hebrews 13, where is our final verse, and I tell you, trying to learn contentment is a process, and you're not alone. And the secret to contentment is Christ. If you keep your eyes fixed on him, you will find the sweet spot in life of contentment. And if the Lord adds or he takes away, you'll still be content. But it is hard to find that spot in a culture like us or like ours. And so here's the final verse. Hebrews 13, 4 says, marriage is to be held in honor among all. Hebrews 13, 4, the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money or covetousness, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So here we are. Many of us are married in this room. And that's what we say to our spouse. I'm not going anywhere. Through good times and bad times, thick and thin, sickness and in health, I'm going to stand by your side. And when you said yes to Jesus, I'm not sure you realize this. That's what you were saying to him. When I don't understand, when things confuse me in life, I want to be faithful to you because you've been faithful to me. I love you because you first love me. Lord, help my singular focus this week to be all about pleasing you. Not about moralism, not about antinomianism, which is no law, I can do whatever I want. No, let it be about I'm married to another, to the one who loved me to the uttermost. So I want to love you, Lord. Doesn't that simplify things for you? It does for me. I just want to do that which pleases him. And so every day I wake up, that's my goal to be content, and also to pursue what pleases him. Well, Father, thank you for Romans 7, which sums it all up for us, and we don't want to miss this. The law can't save us. Jesus saves. This last commandment kind of sews them all together and I think convinces every honest person, I need a savior. I have broken God's law more times than I would want to admit. But thank you that you came to fulfill the law, not to abolish, but to fulfill. Thank you that you died on that terrible cross, Lord, for all of us. Thank you that you rose for our justification. Thank you that you're in heaven right now interceding for your people, for the ones that you love. Would you help us, Lord, in the areas that we find weakness and struggle, in areas of coveting and other commands that the law shows us our deep need for you, our deep need for grace? Would you pour fresh grace upon your people? Would you teach us to be in a relationship where it's no longer about 
outward righteousness. It's about knowing him and not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but having a righteousness which comes on the basis of faith. And then to run the race with endurance once that has been settled. And would you keep your heart and head bowed just for a moment? Is this how you've understood the gospel? Do you know that it's not about works that save you or moralism? It's grace. Have you trusted Jesus Christ? Have you heard a call? Will you marry me? And have you said, I will, I do. And I will give myself only unto you, O Lord. If you haven't, this would be a wonderful time to pray something like this. Lord Jesus, save me. Forgive me for breaking the commands. Thank you that you have come into this world on a saving mission. You died on the cross. You rose from the dead. I believe in the good news of your gospel. I ask you to be my Savior and my King and my Lord. Teach me to follow you. Walk with you all the days of my life. Looking forward to that day when I will see you face to face. If you're a prodigal, this would be a great time. Maybe you've been living under the weight of the law. Maybe you misunderstood the gospel. Maybe you knew the line and you, and you walked into forbidden territory and you're reeling from it. Well, just know that he doesn't give up on you. He loves you. Come back home. Be reconciled to God. And if you're a believer today and maybe you just, you're going through some tough things and maybe for you it's, it's just simply Hebrews 13 that you can dwell on those promises. I will never leave you and I will never, ever forsake you. We may confidently say the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Father, we want to pray over our world today, Canada, all the crazy things happening there, the Russia-Ukraine crisis. There's just so much to pray about. But help us not to be anxious because you're on the throne. We cry out to you that there would be revival in our nation, but we realize, Lord, that it's got to start with us. So cleanse us of our covetousness Help us to be people who model contentment. Forgive us for the times that we've been discontented. Teach us, Lord, the secret of contentment in Christ. It's in his mighty and holy name we pray.